doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a major pain. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Emma about cerebral palsy. According to NHS.UK, cerebral palsy is caused by a problem with the brain that happens before, during, or soon after birth. The brain can either be damaged or not developed normally, although the exact cause is not always clear. As we will learn from Emma in this episode, cerebral palsy is diagnosed in childhood and is not considered to be a degenerative disease, in that the damage that occurs in the brain around birth does not get worse over time. That's why Emma was so confused in her 30s when she started to notice a decline in her mobility. She continually ran into roadblocks because services and support for adults with cerebral palsy experiencing a decline in their mobility just didn't seem to exist. Emma was constantly fighting against this idea that cerebral palsy is a childhood disease. But as she likes to say, children with cerebral palsy grow into adults with cerebral palsy, and those adults also need care and support. Recognizing the need for change, Emma turned to advocacy and now works full-time with the Adult Cerebral Palsy Hub. According to their website, Adult CP Hub has been established to create a home for adults with cerebral palsy and put their needs at the forefront of the minds of the medical and research community. I was absolutely fascinated by this conversation. I'd never thought about, about healthcare in this way before, how the technicality of how a disease is qualified and quantified can prevent someone from getting care because they're dealing with the real life experience of what's happening in their body. But if it doesn't match up with the way that the disease is written about in textbooks, the services and support that person needs might not exist. It's a heartbreaking, frustrating reality, but I'm so appreciative of Emma for bringing it to light and to share, to teach us about this, because there's a lot of people experiencing something similar that are feeling left out and feeling left behind. So I'm so impressed that Emma is doing this incredible advocacy work uh, with her organization, coming on the show today to talk about it, just speaking out about it in general, so valuable and so important. And it was also just a really great conversation, really personal and interesting, and just such a great afternoon chatting with Emma. I'm thrilled to be able to share it with you today, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. I have a quick update to share about my own search for a diagnosis for my mystery illness. I mentioned on the podcast recently that the diagnostic track we had been on ended in a dead end. Uh, and I didn't know what was going to happen next, but I also mentioned that I would be seeing a new doctor. Um, who was actually just uh, in the internal medicine department of my own primary care provider's office here in Seattle at the University of Washington. And I've just been completely blown away by what's happened so far. Before my first appointment, this doctor ordered 45 tests. I went into the lab because she asked me to drop off some blood, to run some blood work before our first appointment together. She had ordered 45 tests and they collected 15 vials of blood. I was absolutely shocked. So this person is apparently very interested in mysterious diseases, rare diseases, and has pulled out some really incredible diagnoses in the past, according to her colleagues in the primary care office. So 
I am just thrilled. I am absolutely shocked. I met with her for the first time. Andy and I sat down and talked with her on Zoom. She actually brought in another physician that is someone that she worked closely with to, to do these sort of crazy diagnoses. And I just really felt like I was in an episode of House. If anyone's watched Dr. House, uh, it's a great show where this you know doctor is this diagnostician. He's just this absolute genius who every week pulls out a rare disease to diagnose this person. It's, you know, the guest star of the week. And it's a show that I grew up watching. And when I got really sick, always wished there was someone like Dr. House that was real. And I feel like I may have found my Dr. House. So this new doctor is absolutely incredible. I really hope that I still feel this way months from now because I've been through things like this before where I thought I'd found someone who was going to help me and it didn't end up panning out. But but this feels really different. I mean, this person has ran so many tests for so many things I'd never even heard of before. And I really feel like if anyone's going to be able to figure me out that this is the best place I could possibly be at this moment to try to get that answer. So to now have this doctor feels so surreal. Uh, Andy and I are both so excited. We're just keeping our fingers crossed, waiting for these test results to come back in. I have another appointment coming up with her in a couple of weeks, and she's going to get me in for some testing, including autonomic testing, like a tilt table test. And speaking of, you know, we talked to Michelle on the podcast a few weeks back about POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And she mentioned a sort of at-home tilt table test you can do with a cheap heart monitor, which is only like 20, 25 bucks on Amazon. So I actually did that finally and discovered that I I showed some signs of definitely something going on uh, with my heart rate being too high and the jump from my heart rate lying down to standing up being too wide. So yeah, so this new doctor's got me set up for autonomic testing. Yeah, I don't know how long any of this is gonna take. I don't know what's gonna come of it, but I am thrilled to find out and so hopeful to finally get some concrete information, get some answers. This is the most promising avenue I think I've ever found. Um, I hope that's not hyperbolic. I hope it's not just I'm feeling that way because it's new. I really think that this could be it, but I've thought that so many times in the past. I used to discourage myself from having these types of excited thoughts or hopeful thoughts because, you know, the crushing defeat of not finding an answer can be really overwhelming. But I, I'm learning as I go, go along in this diagnostic process, the older I get, you know, I mentioned this recently on the podcast, but having hope has done me more good than, than withholding hope from myself. Because every day where I have hope of finding an answer, I feel calmer, I feel better, I feel more seen and taken care of. Every day where I don't have hope is another day where I can potentially spiral out in despair about never getting help. And that's a really hard thought to to have in your mind all the time. So the more hope I have, the the better I feel in general. So I've I've learned the value of that. And I've learned how to mitigate the defeat and the 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 feelings of um you know sadness and the feelings of of frustration when a path doesn't yield results. I'm getting better at dealing with that. So I feel like it's better to deal with that periodically and have hope in between than to never have hope and have to deal with crushing defeat. That's that's how I feel about it at this point in my journey. And right now I have a, a lot of hope. I got my fingers crossed. I will absolutely keep you updated uh, both here and on TikTok, on the Major Pain TikTok, where I did share some of my at home uh, tilt table tests that I was doing with the heart rate monitor, if you want to check that out.
I'll remind you before we get into our discussion with Emma that I am not a healthcare professional, and please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this show without talking to your doctor. I also have to thank our Patreon community. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this show with a monthly contribution through Patreon. I am not working, and I am hoping to turn this podcast into a career that fits with my chronic illness. And I'm so appreciative of everyone that's helping to make that happen. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers who support this show at the highest tier of $25 per month. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, and Trish O'Brien, thank you so much for your continued support. If you have questions or comments you'd like to share about the episode today, you can email me at majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can interact with the show on Instagram and TikTok at majorpainpodcast. And you can leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. This podcast can be found on a multitude of podcast platforms, and it's incredibly helpful to leave a positive rating and review on the platform on which you listen, if that option is available. And I pay special attention to Apple Podcasts because it is one of the biggest podcast platforms. So if you haven't left us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts, it is greatly, greatly appreciated. Even if you listen on another platform, I always really appreciate everyone who heads over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a positive rating and review. I'm so constantly excited and grateful to be a part of this growing community, and I need your help to keep this community growing. So if you'd like to learn about all the ways to support this podcast, you can head to our website, majorpainpodcast.com slash support. And with that, we'll jump into our amazing conversation with Emma about cerebral palsy. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's nice to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you. You are coming to us from the UK. I am in a not-so-sunny London this evening. Yeah, this is our first, uh, what do you call it, cross-continental podcast, I guess? <laughs> international, okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's get to know you a little bit. Emma, why don't you tell us about yourself? So um, I probably can uh, describe myself with many hats, but... Um, principally, um, I'm a mum of three lovely children and my wife, I have a sister and a brother. Um, I trained as a speech and language therapist, I think you call them speech and language pathologists where you are. Um, I also trained as a life coach. Um, I enjoy swimming, I enjoy baking um, and generally spending time with my kids and for um what started off as um, a little side project has now become my main my job, which is running a charity for adults with cerebral palsy. Oh, fantastic. That's so cool. Um, what's your favorite thing to bake? Well, actually, I lie a little bit. My daughter, during lockdown, has become the prolific baker in this house. So usually I'm a sous chef. It's usually cakes <laughs> and bakes. She, um, she has quite a few food allergies herself, so she decided that she needs to um, find things that she likes to eat, and, and generally she likes sweet things. So generally, <laughs> it's of the uh, cake variety. Awesome! Yeah, I, you know the Great British Bake Off is uh, taking America by storm, but you're in the the land where it originated. Is it as as huge uh, in the UK as it is here? <laughs> Probably oh, more so. Definitely, most definitely. No, the um, Great British Bake Off is definitely a hit in this house, but. So is a junior bake-off, mm. um, which is the, is the children's version. And my daughter is um, currently 
uh, filling in the application form because she sees herself as the next uh, great British bagel star. Oh, so. wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So cool. Um, yeah. I like it because it shows that anyone can cook, really. And I like the camaraderie. We have a master chef and various other things here. Um, but that's all very competitive. I like the uh, the nice nature of the Great British Bake Off. Everyone helps each other out. It's kind of the nicest thing about it. Exactly. Yeah, it's a very relaxing show where people are kind to each other. And that's rare these days. <laughs> yeah, it was particularly nice during the pandemic. I think we all needed a a bit of that in our lives so it was good yeah absolutely yeah and we have a um a u.s version of master chef as well with gordon ramsay and it's uh, <laughs> it's a lot of people yelling at each other <laughs> as, does yell, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah as with all things that gordon ramsay is involved in it's people screaming at each other <laughs> i always think that um i could never see myself in a professional kitchen because when someone starts shouting i freeze I never understand how being shouted at makes you do anything better or faster. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I watch a lot of shows that Gordon Ramsay is on, and <laughs> and I always question myself, like, why am I watching him abuse people? But you know, but he's so charming. It's it's very confusing. <laughs> was, um, his daughter was on a show here recently, uh, a dancing show, uh, Strictly Come Dancing. His um, and they actually saw a softer side of him as he was a. Uh, tearing up as his daughter was dancing so oh, wow. there is a human in there somewhere I yeah think. <laughs> i definitely think having kids has mellowed him out a little bit but uh yeah. yeah awesome well i'm really excited to to talk to you today um i'm excited to hear more about your charity as well but let's let's get to to know your situation a bit first so emma what is your major pain so my major pain is um cerebral palsy so um cerebral palsy is a condition that i was born with um and it's something that uh, is generally thought of as a childhood condition. Um, but as I am prone to saying, children grow up to be adults. So children with cerebral palsy grow up to be adults with cerebral palsy. Um, but in this country, and actually in many, um, many countries, um, there was very little recognition of cerebral palsy as an adult condition. So when things started going wrong, majorly for me when I got older, um, I reached out for help and it wasn't there and um, hence the space that I'm in now in terms of trying to change that for adults um, with cerebral palsy. So um, cerebral palsy is, is the largest childhood disability. Um, it affects coordination. It's, it, it's a, a motor disorder. So it's, it's a brain damage predominantly um, before, during or after birth. And you can be diagnosed with cerebral palsy up until the age of two. Okay. So if you have a traumatic incident um, up until the age of two, you get umbrellaed into the term of cerebral palsy. All cerebral palsy really means cerebral means brain, palsy means injury. So you have some sorts of brain injury. Um, predominantly, it used to be thought that those um, brain injuries happen because of traumatic births or um, a lack of oxygen. Um, and now we, we think that that is some of the case, but sometimes it's something that happens. Um, whilst uh, the mum is pregnant too that um, there is something that happens during that but there is still kind of research going on into that but um, it's quite a well-known condition as a childhood condition um, and there's lots of support in terms of medical intervention um, in my case I was diagnosed quite late really um, when I was born I was born six weeks premature um, I spent some time in uh, the special care unit um, 
and then I was discharged home when there was very little concern and there really wasn't very much concern because I hit most of the early milestones so I sat and I spoke um, a skill that's never left me and um, it wasn't until the fact that I didn't walk when I was two um, and actually a GP a general practitioner here noticed that I was still sitting in the corner happily playing but I hadn't got on my feet um, that they did further investigations um, and they found the brain injury. Um, so as a child, I got lots of support, lots of physiotherapy and occupational therapy, um, which helped me onto my feet and to learn to walk and to do sort of those kind of motor coordination tasks and things like that. And extensively, um, I was, um, I am part of the community that was able to access mainstream schools and it, um, I hate to work, use the word normal but I did did live pretty much a normal life um, went to school with my, my, my normal developing peers I was a little bit clumsy I fell more often I couldn't do PE very physical education as easily um, but for me uh, my impairment was much more of a physical nature some people in the CP community are also affected in terms of their cognition and their eating and drinking, and some people need full-time care. But for me, um, it was just my limbs that were affected, and I was able to walk independently without crutches and wheelchairs and things like that. Oh, wow. um, and, and that was the case um, really um, as I grew up and then into my um, teens and early 20s, where I did a lot of travelling, um, like to climb mountains with my Scottish husband and, and went on to have um, three children. And um, what perhaps, I don't know, I know that the systems are slightly different in America, but, but here I was seen under paediatric services by a paediatrician and discharged at 18. And the feeling was then that, that actually... I'd reached my potential in terms of my physical potential. My body had grown to is expect, you know, as expected. I was fully mature and I had my skills and they would see me through for the rest of my life. So all the interventions, what I'd had as a child, would see me through for the rest of my life. But what we know now is that if you live with a condition that uses your body in a different way over a long period of time, that you are going to have some effects from that. And so that there is a kind of deteriorating um, impact on your body. Um, it isn't something that was widely spoken about when I was little. So I didn't have any expectation of that. And it's over the last five to 10 years that people are starting to think about what was the impact for somebody aging with a long-term condition. And that's where um, the name of your podcast, the idea of pain, uh, fatigue, and decline in mobility occurs, um, issues around mental health, and then issues around being more at risk of more chronic conditions like cardiovascular disease and those kind of things puts us at more risk of those things too. Um, and basically my story was that um, when I hit my 30s, I'd started to get problems with my hips and pain in my hips, which were, had been dismissed all the way through my teens as well, you've got cerebral palsy, you're going to have slight pain. Um, and it wasn't until I wasn't able to walk anymore that people took me seriously and did some investigation. And then that led to surgery. Um, but I had to fight very hard for that surgery because 
whilst they acknowledged that my body might be aging quicker than somebody else without a condition, they didn't have the services to support that. They were too afraid to do things like hip replacements and things. So I had to fight very hard. And then when I did eventually get the surgery, um, the rehabilitation support really wasn't there because I think for a standard hip replacement, they, they give you rehabilitation for about six weeks. And it took me 18 months to get back on my feet. So there is a real gap in understanding that you might have an orthopedic condition. So you might have problems with your hips and your bones. But because you're carrying a neurological condition, you are going to respond differently to treatment and to rehabilitation. Um, and I really didn't get the support. And then I started to ask questions because um, of my background as a speech and language therapist, I wasn't afraid of the medical profession and I wasn't afraid to ask questions and try to find out more information. And I never had an intention to start a charity. Um, I just wanted to understand things for myself. Uh, but I learned a lot, and I wanted to share that with everybody else. Yeah, this is fascinating. So I, I've never heard that before that uh, that people with cerebral palsy are basically treated as children, but then kind of left to their own devices, and and that there's this huge disconnect between the reality of what living with it is and what the medical profession is uh, sort of equipped to deal with. And I mean, this is a very common topic on this show that, you know, that there's a disconnect between the reality of living with chronic illness and what the medical profession is capable of sort of um, acknowledging. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating that you had such a different experience as a child than you have as an adult. How common is that for someone with, with cerebral palsy? So cerebral palsy is an umbrella condition. Um, which means that we can be affected mildly to severely. And I think that, and my hypothesis is that, those people that are quite significantly affected, so they may have problems with breathing or with swallowing or with their cognition or with their neurology per se, they probably would be kept in services because they need that constant healthcare support. Mm -hmm. It's people like me who are kind of functioning, who are the lower levels of need as a you know, as younger people that are discharged. Um, and mainly, you know, I take this journey on in a spirit of positivity and in a spirit of understanding and that trying to understand, like you asked the question, why is it that there is such a, yeah. a misunderstanding? And really I've come to, the, to, to two conclusions. One is that um, I guess the life expectancy for somebody with a physical disability was thought to be shorter. Mm. Than those than other people, and therefore, if you don't think a lot of people are going to live into adulthood, then perhaps you don't need those services. That wow. that was also often a, that was some of the issue. But the other issue really is the fact that I think before no one had really considered the impact of living lifelong with the condition, and therefore they didn't. You know, very. I'm I'm still called very frequently by people that say. Um, Cerebral palsy is a non-progressive condition in that the brain injury doesn't change. It's not something like MS or Parkinson's where you're expected to deteriorate. And so it's quite a confusing place to be when you know things are changing, things you used to be able to do are becoming more difficult, but you know that your brain injury or your condition shouldn't change. Wow, yeah. And so there's a real misunderstanding about that. 
And there was a big fight. And I had that often when I went to my general practitioner and said, actually, things are getting harder. I'm falling more often. I used to say my line was, um, uh, I'm falling more often. I'm more of an adult now, so it hurts more. Mm-hmm. And I can't get up as quick. And actually, things are changing for me. And also, I'm exhausted. And I'm in more pain than I used to be. And they would say, uh, would you like some antidepressants? <laughs> Obviously, you're not coping with your condition as well as you used to be able to do. Um, And so because the people that are your gatekeepers to services don't really understand the condition, don't understand that things can change, because clearly when they were in medical school, they were told that things weren't going to change, that it was a non-progressive condition. And so we have had to fight very hard to say we aren't claiming that it's a progressive condition, but we are saying that if you age with a with a chronic condition it's going to have an impact on your body and hence have an impact on what it's like to live with a condition as you get older um clearly everybody ages and i don't believe we used to be caught in this well it's premature aging it's not premature aging in that it doesn't follow the normal trajectory of what what you would expect but without being too doom and gloom, everybody post 40 starts to lose muscle mass, <laughs> uh, which is why your, your, your grandmother at 90 finds it more difficult to get up and down and in and out of a chair than somebody who's an infant sure. who's able to do that because they've, they've not got a condition per se, but they've started to lose muscle mass. And you start to lose about 1% a year from the age of 40. Now, if you're using all of your muscle strength and muscle power to move, and to do those things, if you start to lose that, the impact on you being able to do just everyday things becomes more difficult to do. And then I think you get caught in a vicious cycle of things get harder, you get tireder. Um, I think we know now through working with the research community that, you know, for me to move I use six times more energy to move than somebody who doesn't have my disability. So, of course, when I started work and I had lots and lots of demands on my time in a busy community clinic, I was more tired than my colleagues because it was taking me more energy just to move around and do, do my thing. And also, and that has to have a consequence then on your pain and on how you cope with your condition. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And even, even just chronic pain over time, um, even if it's not, you know, progressing in the sense that it is like a non-progressive condition, like fibromyalgia is, is another one that's considered to not be progressive, but living with chronic pain constantly, just chronic pain is exhausting for your nervous system. You know, I, like our, our nervous systems need a break and you, you need to be able to recharge that energy to deal with the fact that you're in chronic pain. And that's just one symptom, just chronic pain. And yeah, so I can totally, I totally see what you're saying about this disconnect between, you know, technically, scientifically, it's not considered a progressive condition, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a progress, uh, you know, an effect that is progressive on a body that is aging. And that disconnect sounds incredibly frustrating to have to educate your, your medical team you know you're trying to get care from people who are in in essence sort of denying you care and denying that you even need care um, and trying to blame it on emotional health which causes emotional health problems i'm sure (laughs) 
And I think for, for me, you know, we keep being pigeonholed into, oh, we're a medical charity and we're campaigning for medical support. But for me, it's about full life participation without wanting to use two really trendy words. It's about, for me, it was about, I want, you know, I spent a lot of time training to be a speech and language therapist, to work and to progress in my job. And the more pain I was in and the more my mobility was affected, the less I was able to work. Yeah. And what I was saying was, we can do lots around inclusion and we can do lots around, you know, having disabled toilets and, and access and, and what we think about being inclusive. But unless my medical needs are understood and supported, that is my biggest barrier to my full life participation. Wow. Um, and that is what, what we want to change. And, you know, for me, the work that we do at our CP Hub is twofold. One is, is, is the campaigning for better services, better understanding, coordinated care. I want to be able to turn up at my general practitioner and say, I have cerebral palsy. And they say, this is where you have to go. This is what you have to do. And these are the professionals that are going to support you. Like you would do in this country if you had MS, if you had Parkinson's, if you had any other condition, you have a clear care pathway. We don't yet have that in England and that's what, or in the UK. And that's what we're fighting for. And so we are carrying on our fight for campaigning. But the other side of it is how can we support our community? How can we empower our community with the knowledge to support themselves to live their best life. Um, what information do they need to know? What they need to know is how to manage pain, to understand pain, to understand that there are different types of pain and they need to be treated in different types of ways. They need to understand that if you keep fit, if you keep active, then you are more likely to be able to support yourself and delay that decline that you feel. Many people in the community were like me. You know, when I was discharged from physiotherapy services at 18, having done it twice a week since I was two, was like, woohoo, I never have to do this again. <laughs> and I didn't, didn't do any of that kind of... Um, it's understanding that it's not about physiotherapy, but it's about being active, about swimming, about walking, about having an active lifestyle or an active mentality, having those what I call healthy habits around maintaining your body so that you can support yourself. You know, we also uh, talk a lot about um, how you can support yourself in terms of you know, mindfulness and meditation and lots of other things. There are lots of things you can, nutrition, there are lots of things that you can do to help yourself to live your best life and also to navigate a system that's quite difficult to navigate in terms of healthcare and to know when to go and ask for help because many of us in our community have lived with this condition all our lives. So we don't tend to notice when things are, are getting more difficult or... Um, I remember sitting next to a really eminent um, orthopaedic surgeon at one of the conferences we held and they kind of put out the stats that um, adults with cerebral palsy um, fall um, six times more often than people who don't have cerebral palsy, but they don't go and report it to their general practitioners or their medics or whatever. And he said, well, that's because it's so normal for them. They don't. But unless you go and report these things and say things are changing, 
then there's no possible way for you to get that support. So in the charity, we work both to provide support, but to, to provide education so people understand their condition and understand what's available to them and understand what should be available to them so that they've got a voice and they can shout about it as well. Yeah, that's so powerful. I mean, I, I really commend you for that. It sounds like such important work. And it must make such a difference in the lives of the people that you impact. Yeah, I, I hope that it does. I hope that it gives them information. You know, um, we all need to connect to somebody who has had a shared experience. So even if it is, you know, over the pandemic, and because of Zoom and because of technology and the advances that happened so quickly, geography didn't didn't make a difference anymore like i'm talking to you internationally and we can still have a conversation well that was fantastic for us as a community because we could put on zoom twice a week and we could come together as a community and we could share experiences share worries share concerns share successes share advice you know everybody wants to connect um and so even if we just do that at a baseline, even if I can answer the telephone to someone who's struggling and say, you're not going crazy, things do get more difficult as you get older. If your GP or your, practice, or your medical person says they, they can't do anything to help, that's not true. <laughs> you know, go back and ask again. And actually, there are guidelines now out there. Go and demand some support and we'll help you to do that. You know, often... We can't change the situation, but we can get give the support that people need and to hear that they're not alone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a common thing for people with, you know, any sort of chronic illness. You know, for me, I'm undiagnosed and I, I have chronic pain. I have mobility issues. And it's just so common to go to the doctor and ask for help and be denied and be told, you know, if I'm not having a bad day, if they can't readily see it, no one can see chronic pain, you know? So, it's so, it's so common to just have a doctor tell you, well, you're fine, you know, you, you, I don't know why you're wasting my time. And it can be so incredibly deflating. So, to, you know, build some awareness around that and to kind of give people a warning about what they might encounter because you have a disease that it sounds like there's a pretty big misconception about or huge misunderstanding between like the scientific and the practicality of living with it, which is so frustrating because that should be scientific. You know, it, it, it should be something that is studied and recognized and like doc scientists and doctors should know what can happen to someone as they age with cerebral palsy. But it sounds like that is just being sort of ignored or denied or, or, or there's just that disconnect there. I think also, I mean, when I, um, I remember meeting one of the researchers who's now quite eminent in researching um, adult chronic conditions and cerebral palsy as a special interest. And I remember meeting her and she had a doctor before her name and I was quite nervous about meeting this person who knew quite a lot. And I said to her, I'm really sorry, but I've done as much research as I remember how to do from, from my university days, you know, researching medical papers and things. And I can only find five papers in the UK. Um, and she said that's because there are only five papers. Wow. So a lot of the work that we've done in the last five years is to share my story, share stories of others, to excite the research community that actually this is a valuable thing to research. The problem is that 
Without the research, you can't change the understanding of the condition. Yeah. And without changing the understanding of the condition or without the excitement, <laughs> the researchers don't want to research it. Uh, you, know, you kind of have a... And also, the other problem that we all, we, we come across or was the first reason that everyone always gave us is there isn't the data. There isn't... Because we don't really know how many people in the UK have CP or across the world. We can make guesses, but there aren't registers, there aren't things. And no, they're not, but you can make, you know, we've done the work to um, make the guesstimates and look at the population of the country and what we what we expect. And we expect that there's probably about 130,000 adults in the UK that have cerebral palsy. And the population probably in the UK is about 160,000. But also, it's about making those connections internationally because it's not just the UK that have these issues. You know, in America, they're doing great work around cerebral palsy now. Um, they're starting in Australia, in um, Scandinavia, and it's about connecting all of those people and saying, what do you know? Because what you know will apply to uh, what we know and let's get together and let's bringing all our knowledge together and, and pull that knowledge. Um, because the, the thing about CP is that um, it doesn't really change in terms of demographics in the different countries. One would expect that with the advances in um, care postnatally after birth, that actually we would see a decline in the numbers because it used to be thought that actually if it was a traumatic birth or something happened just soon after birth, but we've had huge advances in, you know, neonatal care and the numbers really haven't dropped that much. So there must be something else going on. Why don't you go and find out about it? You know, like, like there's an area that you might want to research, you know. Um, and, I, and I think the other driver for change is that Society's changing, I think, I hope. Oh, yeah. That, that we, you know, that we embrace everybody with difference and we want to understand and we want to include and we want to, and that not everybody has to be the same and that people have dis who have disabilities add value to society and so they're worth understanding and they're worth knowing about and they're worth accommodating in places like workplaces because they are, they bring value to your workplace because they think about things differently. They've overcome things differently. They're fantastic at problem solving. They're fantastic at being tenacious because they've of their life experience. So, yeah. you know, if we want a world that includes everybody, then we have to get interested in it. Well said. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I do feel like that change is happening where people are waking up to the fact that being different is okay and that we are all different and when you try to put everyone into a box you end up excluding so many people or you just end up unhappy you know when you're when you're trying to fit into a box that you don't belong in uh so i mean there's obviously like some pushback against that i mean i you know here in america we're really struggling with this uh upheaval in sort of our you know cultural um way of thinking where a lot of people are pushing back against it and don't want things to change and it's some really awful things are happening because of that but on the other hand it's like the world is kind of waking up to the way in which a lot of people are being oppressed um and how that's been considered okay and normal for so long it's like you know so many people screaming it's like please stop treating me this way 
and finally some of these people are being heard which is very exciting so it's it's a really i mean the world is insane right now you know like the world is just so crazy i mean we're having this discussion the morning after russia invaded ukraine and it's like like what is happening in the world you know how many things can go horribly wrong at once but inside of that there is a lot of change that is happening it's just this time of massive upheaval unlike anything that i think any of us have experienced in our lifetimes no uh, i completely agree um you know uh, kind of sounds a bit strange to to bring it back to, to cp but as well as everybody also wants identity so i think one of the, the things that that we've done as a charity is it's given people with CP an identity within the medical world. Because, you know, when I went with problems and they didn't really know what to do with me, they sent me to the polio clinic because it's a bit like polio or because they don't have adult services. They send me to the pediatric uh, team because pediatric consultants know a lot about CP because they treat it, but mm -hmm. the adult teams don't because they don't. So they send you to the pediatric team. And it's like, one of the things I wanted to do um, with the hub was to create a home, to create a place, to create the security. You know, um, a lot of the work I did, is, this is a real kind of tangent, but a lot of the work I did as a speech and language therapist was understand about attachment and detachment and the, the idea that children learn language and get their security if they've got a really strong bond with their parent. And then if you've got really strong attachment, then you can detach and go and explore the world. What I want for the hub is for there to be that really strong place that people know that they can come and, and be part of something, be part of a community and be very secure so that they can then go out and fight. You can't do that unless you've got a secure base. Um, and that's what I think, why I think it's important that whilst a lot of the condition that we, um, well, I don't know, like you use the word suffer from, but, you know, pain, mobility, um, mental health, um, you know, heavy plegias, diaplegias, they can all fit into other conditions. But what I think is important is that you've got your own identity as somebody with cerebral palsy too. You know, both things are important. And I, I think um, you can hold both truisms. Both things are true, you know. Yeah, totally. Speaking of identity, it sounds like you had to go through a pretty massive shift. You know, you graduated from physiotherapy at 18 it's like the the world is in front of you and then you weren't told about how things can progress and yeah. when you experience more pain and, and more difficulty with your mobility how do you integrate that into your identity and, and i ask that because i as someone who had to go through something like that you know like going out in public in a wheelchair for the first time for me was like you know who am i now you know <laughs> so so tell, tell me about that shift of, because it sounds like you really had to kind of take it on yourself. You didn't have the support that you would have liked. And that's why you're now fighting for others to be able to have that in the future. But it sounds like your, your journey through that must have been very difficult. I, I think it was. You know, I think I laugh when you say like <laughs> the first time in a, in a wheelchair, because, you know, a lot of the work that we're doing with the community now is is changing our perception about mobility aids as, mm. as empowering tools yeah. rather than you failed. Because I think, I don't know about, maybe you didn't have your condition as a child, but as a child, um, you know, your goals are to get less dependent on, 
on AIDS. Wow, you yeah. know, you, you've been a success if you're not walking with AIDS. <laughs> That's um, fascinating. Yeah, you're 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 you know you're a success if you fit in with everybody else. You know, um, wow. And so the whole idea for me about using crutches at first was like, no, I don't do that. And then to me to use a wheelchair, wow, you know, that's not who I am. I'm not a disabled person. Um, so, yes, that was a big shift. I think for me, it was the understanding, you know, when I needed, when I had my surgery, I was really unable. Mm-hmm. You know, I um, was discharged from hospital with very little support. I came home with um, a gutter frame rather than a crutches, which actually was too big to get through the door frames in, in my house. Um, so I was stuck in basically in one room. I couldn't get up the stairs for six months, so my bedroom was downstairs in the kitchen. <laughs> kind of think um, Charlie the Chocolate Factory, so I was in the bed <laughs> while kids were having their dinner uh, around the table, you know? Um, and But whilst I was recovering from surgery, it was more okay to use a wheelchair to go out because that meant I could go or sure. to use AIDS because I was recovering from surgery. The harder bit is I'm now recovered and therefore not ill and I still need to use those things. But I now understand that they're my tools. You know, it was a revelation for me. Um, I think we went out for my son's third birthday and I was in a chair because I couldn't walk at the time. And um, I realised that it was the first time that we'd been out as a family that I didn't come home exhausted that I hadn't sat in the cafe having a nice coffee and reading my book while they were having fun, you know, um, because I was too exhausted to join in. I joined in the whole day. I'd been part of it the entire day. And actually, it was a, it was a helpful thing rather than a hindrance. But that's not to say that, you know, I still don't struggle sometimes with walking around with AIDS when I don't want to. Um, appear different you know I I never spoke about having cerebral palsy before you know before I started this really I mean I did within the context of my family I suppose but it really wasn't a big deal when I was a kid and I fell over I was put back on my feet and carried on (laughs) and there was nothing that I couldn't achieve that my siblings didn't achieve and that stood me in really, really good stead to get where I've got in life. Though I'm not denigrating that at all. But I went to mainstream school and spent a lot of time trying to fit in with everybody else. Um, and one thing that we've noticed, and this is no study, this is just my observation, is that when I meet people in the community that are like me and went to school with normally developing peers and had that life experience, that they have a feeling of not quite fitting into either community, Mm. not quite disabled enough to be disabled and not quite normal enough to be normal, if we want to use that term. And then other people that I meet that, you know, um, who have have had a a life experience where they went to a school, we used to call them special schools here or special education schools, where they mix with other disabled people. Actually, they're more okay with their identity and they're used to mixing with other people that also have their condition. You know, I'm meeting people today doing Zoom calls and Zoom support groups who are in their 60s and 70s who've never met anybody else with CP before. Wow. You know, so 
I think it depends on your life experience. For me, it was a big shift. But I'm always saying to um, our community when they ask me about things and how I deal with it is that once I learned that if I owned my own condition and if I, if I was okay with it, then everybody else around me was okay with it. And when I learned, and I still struggle sometimes, to ask for help when I need help or when I need help, and that that's okay, my life changed. But it is a process, and I don't expect people to be able to do it overnight. Yeah. Wow. So many good stuff. So many, you just said so much good stuff in there. <laughs> um, mobility aids as empowerment aids. I love that. I a thousand percent agree with that. I, I've experienced this as well, where, you know, using a wheelchair, it's like, oh, wow, all of a sudden I'm included because I can go do things that I couldn't do otherwise. And it made me wish I'd started using a wheelchair sooner. The idea of, of mobility aids being a sign of failure and fighting against that because that's sort of the societal norm. Um, that's fascinating to have grown up as a child where that is sort of the expectation that the less you use a mobility aid, the more you're succeeding. So then as an adult to have to rewire that sounds so tricky. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't have that at all. Like I, I didn't need a, I I'd been using a wheelchair for about a year and a cane for a year before that. I needed one earlier, but I didn't know it, you know, because, because I'm undiagnosed, we had no idea what was going on, but I was just like dragging myself from place to place in so much pain. And, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the wheelchair has completely opened up my life of what I'm capable of doing, and yeah, just this idea of 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 using a, a mobility aid equating to failure is just such a bad standard that has been set. Because if you need a mobility aid, you need one. There's no right or wrong about that. There's no um, success or failure. It's just necessity. Uh, you know, it's it's something that allows you to live a more productive, full, and joyful life because you're able to get around and do things a little bit easier. So, yeah, I mean, all of these like societal norms and pressures and internal pressures, the things that we're taught as children versus the reality of the world, balancing all of that into your identity with, a, with any sort of chronic health challenge is very, very difficult. And, you know, the more we are just talking out loud about it, the more we're having conversations because there is this societal pressure to not talk about it at all. And, you know, I, I just think about the next generation, you know, you, you shouldn't be 70 years old before you speak to someone else with your condition. It's so um, isolating. And I mean, wow, <laughs> so much to think about in that. But I also think, you know, uh, just a, a little anecdote that I picked my um, son up from school when he came out of nursery. and. Uh, and one of the, his little friends went up to me and said, you use a wheelchair, that's your form of transport. And I sort of kind of recoiled in, you know, you shouted this across the playground. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, they've been doing transport school, modes of transport, and my son had volunteered that more my mommy uses a wheelchair as her mode of transport. For them, it's so normal. When I pick my kids up from school now and when they're, they're slightly older, but um, I have... Um, at the school they, they, they go to, there isn't parking for the parents. They have to park on the street, but I get to park in the, in the school so that, I can, so that I can be the active mum that I want to be. And when her, their friends come and they go, oh, why did your mum park there? They say, oh, don't worry about her. She's just disabled. 
you know, the way that they talk about it and they talk about it with their friends, in a way, it makes me cringe. Mm. But in a way, it's like they're so accepting of things. That it's just the norm that, that I think that there is hope because if we can educate the children that that's normal, that that's just the way things are, um, then I think that's where we're going to get the change. I don't necessarily think that the older generation, I think they're just in the process of just living and accepting and dealing. And it's the younger generation that we can have a sphere of influence. Yeah. How do you feel about the word disability? I don't know, really. I haven't really... um, I often say I'm unable to do things rather than disabled. And I also... I'm a really strong believer that you are disabled mostly by the environment that you're in rather than your skills sometimes. And that frustrates me in that, you know, we were away last week. So we were in a little cottage that um, their oven was, you know, down on the floor, you know, old style, whereas we've changed my kitchen so that my oven is at, um, you know, stomach height. And so I can take things out of the oven without falling over. and I can get around my kitchen really easily and I can cook a meal. And I don't even think of myself as unable in any way, shape or form in my house because I've made it so that I'm not. And then you put me in a different environment and suddenly I become very disabled. So I think we are very um, disabled by our environment. Um, disability is a term, I think... I'm not unhappy with it in terms of it lets other people know that you might need some support, but I don't think it's quite understood by by some people. Like it always makes me laugh that I don't know about you, mind you, you're you're mostly now in your chair, but but I always laugh that the disabled entrances to things are always a much longer walk because they they. They make the ramps really long or it's round the, you know, you can go into the entrance with no stairs, but it's round the back of the theatre or something. And I always end up having to walk the furthest and actually that's more exhausting. And I know that if you're in a chair and you're, you're propelling yourself or you're, or you're being pushed, it's less exhausting. But, you know, I don't know. I, I, what I do think is that we'll only have an inclusive world when we don't have to ask for something special, when all doors are the width that everybody can get through, that, you know, there aren't any steps to, to um, get in. There is an example, I don't know if you heard about it in the States, but there was a, a delegate to the climate conference um, who was trying to, in Glasgow, and uh, they'd come over with some, uh, I think they were in a, in a wheelchair, but certainly... Um, and they couldn't get into the building. And the response was, um, well, they didn't ask. If they'd have asked, we'd have done it for them. Mm, I did you know, we are, that, yeah. and, and my response to that is, then we're not being inclusive because we're making it special and different. It'll only be fully inclusive when it's not, when it's just the norm. It just is, you know. Yeah, totally. Like, I forget to tell people all the time, you know, because I, yeah. I am... I can walk short distances with the cane and if I'm going someplace longer, I need to use the chair. Yeah. Um, and I, it also, for me, it goes up and down based on the day. So 
<laughs> and, and at the CP community, we have that problem. Yeah. And I think people think you're disabled or you're not disabled, right. or you're a wheelchair user or you're not a wheelchair user, or you know, you're a you cane user or you're not a cane user, but that's not the case. Right, exactly. And people uh, accuse you of faking or you know, they get this look on their face when you show up with a cane instead of a wheelchair. Um, but but because the world is not accessible, sometimes it is harder to use a wheelchair. And I've yeah. had I've had situations where there wasn't, uh, if I wanted to participate in something, I had to be able to do it on a good day with a cane because there wasn't an accept- accessible option. And, you know, I've had like doctor's appointments where I forget all the time to mention that I'm going to show up in a wheelchair. It's like, yeah, give me the, the wider room. I forget constantly because I don't think of it as like, you know, it's it's now integrated into my normal life. It's just what I do normally. It's just what life is. And life shows up however it shows up on a certain day. And I don't want to have to, you know, call ahead everywhere that I go and say, hey, you ready for me? Because I'm, I'm rolling in, you know. <laughs> I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to have to think of myself like other myself in that way you know yeah i think that's true i i also think it's education within the cp community is also educating them about that you know yeah you aren't either a crutch user or a you know we didn't get taught that it's something that i've learned and we're trying to educate the community um about too and and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and also if you think if you're living with a long-term condition and you're everything's more harder work why should we have the extra strain of reminding everybody else that that's what we need and that we have to be the ones to remember those things before we're able to do it um it it's it's fascinating um I work with a colleague. So the other person that runs a charity with me and started with me is, is, a, is a neurophysiotherapist, which is kind of the beauty of what, what we can do because we have someone who's actually living it and someone who's worked within the health service and wants to change too. And we've had meetings up in, in London. I live about um, 30 minutes uh, in North London, but in the, in the suburbs to get into London. And the first time we had to navigate the, um, the underground together, she said, I never realized what extra work that you need to do in order to just do a journey that I do. Because mm. I don't think about it. I just turn up at the station and um, I get on the train and I get off and where I get off, I, I can cope with. Whereas for me to do a journey, I think which stations are accessible, which mm. stations, how much walking do I need to do, which is the quickest journey. And I've done a lot of thinking before I've even step foot to do that journey and she said it was a real um insight that she, even though she'd worked with the with the community for years she'd never really thought about it's kind of that extra burden of life that you have to take on yeah totally and you already have an extra burden of life you know we're, we're dealing with our bodies <laughs> not working exactly how we would want them to and that yeah. is you know there there's such a, a an emotional you know process that you have to go through uh to accept that and then to have the world constantly trying to exclude you on top of that it's like come on you know (laughs) this isn't fair (laughs) i'm just trying to live here you know yeah it's so frustrating i'm curious about you oh sorry go ahead 
No, I was just going to say, but I also think it gives you amazing things, amazing yeah. attributes. So, and I'm not somebody that sits, and I know there are lots of people who say, I love my CP, I wouldn't have it any other way. Because really, if I could take away the pain, if I could take the inability away, I probably would. <laughs> However, I don't deny that it's given me insight. It's given me a life experience that other people don't have. Absolutely. Well, we, you know, going through the process of learning to accept uh, a disability or a chronic illness, going through the process of realizing that your life isn't going to look how you dreamed and go jumping through all these mental hoops to be okay with that and to learn to be happy again, you really learn how to be happy. You know, like a lot of people that have everything in their life, they have like a great job, they have family, they have, you know, a great partner and they're just miserable. And it's because they don't know how to be happy. They don't know how to sit in a moment and enjoy it. They're always worried about something. They're always, you know, thinking about the things that they don't have instead of thinking about what they do have. And I used to be like that. You know, I used to be much more unhappy because I didn't know how to enjoy the present until until my present was like really taken away from me and I had to really think and really work to enjoy it. And it's weird how accumulative that becomes where you just really start to be happier overall. Um, so yeah, going, going through hard things is a really incredible way to learn how to be more content with life. Um, and that's something that I hear from a lot of people with chronic illness or disability is, um, or d differently abled individuals finding that inside of themselves. So there is so much value, you know, there, there is so much value to be found, so much community to be found. It, there's nothing black and white about this at all. You know, it's all these weird shades of gray and, and being, being able-bodied is that way also. It's just harder to recognize, I think. So, you know, that's part of why I make this show is to kind of help my, my, my able-bodied friends, like the community around me of people, I'm hoping there are able-bodied people that listen to this show who, who get a sense of perspective about what they have, because I wish that I had had that before my health really t kicked up into high gear, because there's so much more that I could have done in those moments, you know? But I'm still like, I'm so grateful for what I can do now, even though what I can do now is so much more limited I'm so much more grateful for it. It's really bizarre. And it's not like platitudes. It's not like, you know, it, it, I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm just like, this is just the reality of what you kind of learn. So, um, yeah. And like being able to have that perspective is so valuable and sharing it, hearing about other people living with that perspective is so valuable. Finding the commonality between all these different chronic illnesses because they're, you know, completely different diseases. You will sometimes learn similar lessons and it's just it's all part of the tapestry of being human that gets swept under the rug and it's just so unfortunate you know <laughs> um yeah we're all a part of this giant ball of humanity and we all have something to add um yeah it's just it, it's just fascinating how the disconnect between what what actually brings joy and content contentedness versus what you're taught which is like money and success when in fact it is you know uh self-awareness and and presence i think 
uh, myself a little. I couldn't agree with that more. <laughs> <laughs> T- tell me a little bit about your chronic pain situation. I'm curious both what what it feels like for you and also what your coping mechanisms are. Um, so I guess I kind of describe my pain in three different ways, and, and that's been really useful to be able to identify the different types of pain that 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 I have and and others have. So um, muscle pain, because things get really, really tight. Mm. Um, um, Neurological or neuropathic pain because of nerves. Um, And then spasticity. So quite a lot of, so the the type of CP that I have is is a a spastic. um, My muscles are very tight. Um, Some people in the community, their their muscles are very loose. Mine are very tight. So um, I have pain. uh, those three types of pain. I used to have more of my pain in my legs after walking long distances. Also, pain in my back because my legs are one one leg is shorter than the other because it never grew. So I was always walking slightly unevenly, so that put pressure on, on my lower back. Um, also, because my posture is not great, I had problems with my neck. So over time, I've had different pain, and then the pain in my hips actually um, was not CP. And that's another thing that happens for the communities. Something called diagnostic overshadowing, where mm. everything's put down to your chronic condition. Actually, what happened is I had hip dysplasia, where oh, wow. the, the, the joint and the hadn't developed properly. And that is one of the conditions that can happen with CP, although that's also not talked about very widely. And so that's why I was having problems with my hips. Um, so I have those kind of pain. And then... Actually, in the in the last five or six months, ironically, because I've overused my upper body, because I've used crutches over the last three or four years consistently, I've now put pressure on my shoulders and the joints and the capsule in my shoulders are really um, have really got inflamed. And the thing about having uh, cerebral palsy is that, or particularly for me, I don't know. I think it's common for everybody, but I couldn't sort of, in my experience is that pain brings on my spasms. So um, because I've got pain in my shoulder, because that's inflamed, then that kicks off the spasms. And actually the spasm pain is more painful than the actual pain in, in, in my shoulder um, because my brain doesn't go, oh, there's a pain. My natural response is to move out of that position. Mm-hmm. My my also goes, oh, that's painful. Oh, all the muscles around it are going to clamp and hold you in the position that is the most painful until it lets go. Um, so that's been an interesting learning journey for me. And, um, you know, the irony is that I think that most of my shoulder pain and my arm pain is due to the fact that I use the crutches because my legs didn't work very well. So, you know, you kind of get into this official circle and, you know, so you, you talked earlier about accepting and re-accepting. I think acceptance is not a one-time fix-all. You have to keep being accepting. You know, um, I never had a problem with my upper body. In fact, my upper body was my friend. My upper body supported my lower body. And now my upper body is failing. Things that I used to find really easy. I guess like you were saying, you know, I used to be able to do this and this. I could say... I used to be able to chop all the vegetables without being in pain with it. But now I have to ask my daughter to do it some days because it's too painful. Or yeah. I used to be able to get dressed independently and now I'm finding that a struggle. 
So you have to kind of re-accept things um, as things happen. Yeah. I'm hoping that my arm pain will <laughs> eventually be sorted. And this is the problem going all the way around in our conversation is there are not that many people that understand and want to give you, know how to support you. And so, you know, I guess in terms of pain management, you have the kind of traditional um, uh, medicines, you know, drugs. Um, and when I asked the support group, I said that, you know, I was coming on a podcast um, about pain. Um, you know, some of the comments that I got back when we were talking about pain were things like, well, if you say to a, a pharmacist that you need painkillers, they're reluctant to give you it long term because they think you're going to get addicted to this. Yeah. There's lots of that going on. And then there's a lot of talk in this country about what they call social prescribing. Um, so things like access to gyms or access to swimming pools or access to massage and all of those kind of things. Because I think we need to think holistically about managing pain and, and some of these things in combination other things that work. So it's not just about traditional pain medication, but it's also about lifestyle management too. Sure. And yeah. Use both. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I, I, I love that. Um, yeah, we have a huge problem in this country where we are in the midst of an opioid epidemic. And to combat that, uh, it is now incredibly difficult to get any pain pills at all. And so now it's like, you know, the chronic pain community, a lot of people just feel kind of screwed. You know, it's like uh, a lot of I'm hearing stories constantly of people's pain management being taken away or being cut in half or just, you know, just being removed altogether. Um, and it's just, it's become this, you know, it's like we fixed, we're trying to fix a problem by causing an even bigger problem. And it's a, it's a huge issue here. I'm curious if it's similar in the UK. Yeah, I think perhaps not to the same extent, but I, I definitely think that it is an issue and everyone's, you know, very reluctant to give you long-term um, pain management. But I also don't believe, but I also believe that it's incumbent on the community and for ourselves to um, look for other, other remedies, you know, the other, you have to, do two you have to do both right it's not just about you know um the drugs it's also about um management of um of your daily life of understanding you know how much you can do versus how much you need to do and kind of that understanding you know when my fatigue levels are high my pain is high yeah when my stress levels about not about CP but about managing my children or or you know the bills, when those things are difficult in my life, my pain is 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 higher. You know, so pain is also a symptom of something else that's going on as well. So you know we have to look at it a bit more holistically than just pain medication. And there is a very clear for me link between your mental health and your physical health neither of those things are an exclusive thing and they work together and when I get stressed about um, disability or CP or that I can't do things anymore or, you know you know we all have those days then my pain is definitely higher um, and so there are things that, that I believe in terms of um, 
belief systems and thoughts that are also can have an impact on your pain. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's a one size fit all. I don't think it's because, and, and maybe I'm sitting here saying that to you because when I take pain drugs, <laughs> I can't function the way that <laughs> I want to function. You know, I can't be the mum that I want to be. I can't drive the car that I need to drive so that I can be independent. So I'm probably the person that wants to take drugs the least and have to be reminded that sometimes taking some drugs actually really help. So I probably at that end of the spectrum, but you know, one thing that I did learn was that I'm the sort of person because of my chemistry that, you know, I can take a drug and have a quite significant effect from it, whereas other people don't. So that's just the body that I'm living with that, you know, yeah. if I take uh, my antispasm medication, I have to take it at night because it knocks me completely out. Whereas other people take it in the morning and function and do a whole day at work. So, you know, yeah. you have to know who you are. Every, everybody is different. You know, we all react yeah. to everything completely differently. And that's why the idea that there's like an overarching right way to deal with pain is ridiculous. It's like absolutely yeah. ridiculous. And I, I totally agree with you about the holistic approach, you know, I, I do think that there are certain thoughts that can help. I, you know, we're always, con we're always accused of causing our own pain with our thoughts, which is not what I'm saying at all, <laughs> at no, all. Not. No, no, not at all. Um, but I do think that there are, you know, finding a sense of calm, you know, regulating your own nervous system with your own intentional thoughts can be helpful absolutely and diet and getting any sort of movement or exercise whatever your body is capable of um you know i try to live as clean of a life as possible because I, my body is really struggling with something and i want to give it as much support as i can um and yeah i i'm i'm not using any opiates right now i have used tramadol in the past and found it you know before my health flared up to the point where i needed something every day um occasional use of tramadol was incredibly helpful incredibly helpful it would something to keep me going on a, on a random bad day and you know because of the fear of addiction i do avoid that on daily use now um but it's because i live in a state where cannabis is legal and because that really helps with my um you know, small amounts I find to be very helpful with my chronic pain situation. So, you know, in some ways I am using a drug to function and I, I've gone long periods without just to see if I could. And my functionality just goes out the window because I'm just in so much pain. You know, I, I need to have tools um, to help. You know, I, I need support because my body, there's a process happening in my body that is very, very painful and something is wrong and we don't know what it is and we don't know how to treat for it. So to have no support is, is a horrible option, you know? Um, and I, I think about all the people out there who have no support because they're uh, maybe they live in a place where cannabis isn't legal or it doesn't work for them because that's a thing that absolutely happens or, or they had, you know, pain medication that's been taken away. Um, you know, I, I talk to people all the time who use pain management responsibly. They use, uh, less than what the doctor tells them to do and still had it taken away because of changing laws in this country. So, you know, we just, we need to have that full approach where all these tools are on the table and doctors understand that, you know, if they can't help someone who is in chronic pain, that it is not, 
you know, it is not, it should not be off the table to offer some sort of pain management. No, and I think that people don't understand, you know, I often describe it like, you know, when you have a background noise that you haven't even noticed is on. Yes. And it's when you turn it off (laughs) that you realize that you've been battling that the whole time. Yes. Um, And what a relief it is, you know, we have a dishwasher that this low hum and then you don't realize it's on but when it goes off you think oh thank goodness i don't have to and that's how i would describe my uh, my pain is that it's constantly there there's constantly part of my brain that's trying to block it out so that i can function yes it's exhausting yes totally i love that analogy and and it you know uh, and you know it does get at you And, and when you're in pain and you don't sleep you, you create all of these vicious circles. And so at some point you have to break the circles. Do you get better sleep so you can manage the pain better? Or um, do you manage the pain so you can get more sleep? Or, or, you know, do you manage your pain so that you can, you're less tired and fatigued? You know, it, it is a vicious circle. And I think that the medical profession have to sit down and, and think about that in terms of, it's not black and black and white. It's not daily. It's not. Um, it's not. It's not daily life for every. You know, you have to see everybody's daily life and what they need to achieve in those. And sometimes it's okay to be able to cope with the pain. But other days, when you really want to concentrate and you really want to do something, then that's when you probably need the the drugs to get you through. You know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't think. I think there needs to be much more of a wider conversation about it. Absolutely. I love that analogy. I was just thinking of, uh, I lived in an apartment where the person who lived upstairs um, had a little fire in their apartment and the sprinklers went off and flooded my apartment. So, the, you know, these guys came in to dry out my apartment and they brought in these giant fans, like five giant fans and turned them on along with like a dehumidifier and like a couple of heat sources to just dry out the whole apartment. And it was so loud. You know, I, it was so loud and they expected me to sleep in there. And I'm like, I can't sleep with this much noise, you know? Um, so it's like, if we turn off a few of the fans and get the noise quieter, I could sleep. And if you think of that as chronic pain, if you reach a level where it's so loud that you just can't function, there needs to be a way to turn the noise down. Uh, it's like putting in earplugs, you know? And it's not that you it's not that you have to have that 24 hours a day all the time. It's that you need to have tools to modulate when the noise gets super loud. And, you know, there's so many great tools out there, um, like medication, Distraction therapy. Distraction is one of my favorite things um, is for managing pain. You know, just getting outside, getting some sun, getting some fresh air, changing up your environment, um, surprising yourself with different things. Uh, there's just so many things you can do that will modulate that, that pain level. And having, having a toolkit that has as many things as possible, you, for me, it, it doesn't help to rely on the same thing every day. I need to switch it up. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's so many ways to get through that. And it's, 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 when, it's when people feel like they have no options that they get in a really dark place. And that's the thing that is just so um, horrible because it can be avoided with the right support. And a lot of people are just getting the absolute wrong support and like not even just getting no support, but getting the wrong support, being told the absolute wrong things to do. 
Uh, but I also think it's about having communication, having conversations. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily need to be somebody that knows everything about your condition, but it needs to be someone to be a sounding board. Yeah. And you have to be open to hearing the different suggestions um, and giving it a try. Um, yeah. And knowing that not everything's going to work. And just because one thing doesn't work doesn't mean the next thing you're going to try is not going to work. And on a different day, in a different time, it might work. So you just, you need to be open about it too. So I True. think it's a two-way process. That's super true because I remember being told, you know, I, I was misdiagnosed with fibromyalgia at one point and they tell me, you just need to get light, moderate exercise every day and then you'll, it'll go away. And I was like, okay, this sounds insane. You know, like this doesn't sound right. And, um, and I don't want to do it because this sounds wrong, you know, <laughs> but it can be very helpful. You know, it can yeah. be helpful, but absolutely. But then there are days where your body's out of resources. And if you try to exercise, you're going to cause harm. And it's very easy to think, oh, well, they were wrong. This causes harm. When in fact, the reality is that it's actually probably really good for you most of the time. And you need to learn how to kind of speak to your body and find out what's right for you on different days because it will change. It will fluctuate. Um, yeah. So, being being open to trying things, you know, being open to accepting new things into your life and to um and to quiet that voice that's telling you that nothing will work because that voice screams at me sometimes yeah and i think one of the things the, the definitely when i was talking to community about pain one of the big things was learning the different types of pain um to know what might work so you know if you've got muscle pain or particularly you know if muscle pain is the biggest pain that you're having that day then, you know, things like heat, things like swimming, um, things like dental exercise will have an impact, will support you. Um, but if you're having spasm pain, they won't necessarily help you. Something else will help you if it's neuropathic pain, a different type of medication. So I hear a lot of people say, I've tried all the drugs and nothing works. But it's because they're taking the wrong drug for the wrong thing. Mm. So being able to self-identify or start to learn about your responses, you know, and also you talk about exercise. We do lots of work in the charity because, you know, we believe that keeping mobile is really important to help. But you have to understand how to exercise safely. Mm. And you have to understand that the guidance around um, exercise that there is there for the general population does apply to you too. Because people often say, I'm disabled, I can't exercise. But you need to understand how to, to um, so the, the guidelines is, I think, moderate exercise three times a week. But you need to understand what moderate exercise is for you. Yeah. What does that mean? And how am I going to achieve that? And also at different times of the day or the different, um, or at different days of the week, you know, when it's good for you to exercise and when you're going to get bonus out of exercising. Um, and you know to give an example we had um, a guy that did our what we did a movement challenge where we encouraged people to get moving and set their own goals and when we first met him you know he had really sore knees but why did he have really sore knees because he'd stopped using his crutches he was too scared and he wasn't being successful so he was going around his flat during the pandemic on his knees Oof. well and he said I can't exercise and by the end of the challenge he was, you know, he was back up on his crutches. He was doing a few laps of his, his um, flat. And then by the end of that, he was 
Um, and now I know that he walks around to his mum that lives, you know, outside around the corner and he's built up his stamina. It is slow, but he has made progress. And he will say that his pain levels in all areas of his body has decreased mm. and that actually he's a much happier person. Um, I think also because he's getting out more yeah. and he's connecting with people and that has an impact. And also the endorphins of exercise can only help you. Um, but that is true. But that's not to say that you'd advise people to exercise when they're in, you know, real pain and they really hurt themselves and it would be detrimental. So you need to understand what your body's telling you. Yeah, none of it is simple. None of it is straightforward. But it is possible. You know, it's um, it's doable. Yeah. Um, Emma, you've yeah. done an incredible job today. This time has flown by. I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Um, I have one more question for you, and then I would love to hear about where to find your charity and any other information about that. But my last question for you is, you know, I always like to ask my guests at the end of a conversation, um, you know, what is it that you've learned that would that you wish you could send back to yourself or send back to someone who is going through your condition? Um, but I think in your situation, you know, you're talking about changing the perception of, of how your disease is taught, basically. So, what is it about cerebral palsy that you would change how people who are freshly diagnosed with it, what is the expectation that you want them to, to learn based off of your experience? I think for the, the medical community, I'd like to say children with cerebral palsy grow up to be adults with cerebral palsy, and so you need to think about that in, as a long-term condition. Um, to people um, who are, um, are growing up with cerebral palsy, I think it's to say, um, own it. Own your condition. Learn about your condition. Learn what works for you that it's a process, different things will work at different points in your life. And that um, the onus is also on you to look after yourself and that we're not giving you the information um, that things could get worse as you get older because we're trying to be fear-mongering or because um, there's a really poor prognosis. But that if you are armed with all the information, you can make the best choices for you in your life. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is what I didn't have and I wish that I did have. Um, I often say to the community, as I've said, that you know, you need to own your condition, you need to be confident in yourself. But I'm not, under no illusion, you know, every young person has their insecurities, whether they have CP or they have anything else, you know, People have insecurities. People have, um, uh, well, everybody wants to be the same when you're a child. You know, it's kind of a, a thing. You don't want to stand out. You don't want to be different. But I guess I'd say to someone younger is that we are trying very hard to change society, to embrace difference. And that hopefully as things change, it's going to be more okay to be different and do different, do things differently. And then kind of, I guess this is my long-winded answer to the community. The, the strap line that we always use on our, um, on our cha charity website is um, never believe that a small group of committed individuals can change the world. 
indeed it's the only thing that ever has. Mm. And that was by um, an anthropologist called um, Margaret um, Mead. And when I read that, I thought, yeah, you know, I was always told somebody will do something about this one day. And I just thought, well, okay, let's give it a go and see how we, how we get on. Wow. Amazing answer on, on every, on, you know, three different answers, four different answers. They're all fantastic. Thank you so much. Wow. Your perspective is so valuable. I'm so honored to be able to share it on the podcast. Um, tell us again, the name of your charity. And if anyone wants to get involved or to find it online, where do we go? So it's, um, it's adult cerebral palsy hub and, um, it's at CP hub, um, on Instagram, Twitter, um, and Facebook. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, Emma, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to plug? Any other social media you'd like to direct us towards? No, um, you can follow our story and um, join the community. Fantastic. Um, yeah, you've given me a lot to think about. You know, so many, so many little tidbits of information in this conversation that just really resonated deeply with me. And I, I appreciate your time so much. You did a fantastic job. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters-Schmidt, Kelsey Matson, and All Around Foundation Waterproofing, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, and Trish O'Brien. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.